This is the Greatest Story Ever podcast. There comes a time when all the cosmic tumblers have clicked into place and the universe opens itself up for a few seconds to show you what's possible. With Keith Conrad. You know, everything is not an anecdote. You have to discriminate. Here's a good idea. Have a point. It makes it so much more interesting for the listener. Keith Conrad here, and uh, we've got a new episode posting tomorrow, but unfortunately today... We learned that we lost Apollo 15 astronaut Alfred Warden. And uh, that's, a, that's a, a pretty sad loss uh, for me on, on two accounts. First of all, uh, my dad was actually at the Apollo 15 launch uh, back, in, uh, back in 1971. And I had the chance to interview Alfred Warden uh, a few years back. And so I just wanted, I just figured it was a, it was a good idea to maybe. Uh, post this interview just to just to, to remember uh, Alfred Warden, who had a a great career even before he was uh, part of NASA. And uh, I talked to him about that, uh, what his career was like before he became an astronaut, what it was like to fly around the moon, and then what it was like uh, when you have to adjust to life after flying to the moon. not uh, very often I get the chance to uh, talk to an Apollo uh, astronaut. Well, there aren't too many of us around. <laughs> well, that's true, but I uh, was especially interested in talking to you because actually in uh, July of 1971, my dad was actually at the launch of Apollo 15. I'm was not, he? I, I'm not sure if, you know, like you could look from the gantry and actually see him out there in the distance watching, but he was out there. <laughs> well, there were a lot of people. There were about a million people there when we launched. I would imagine so. You know, yeah. uh, we we actually, uh, my family and I went down to see the uh, the last shuttle launch uh, oh, last month, mm-hmm. and uh, basically, you know, the the thing we kept hearing afterwards was, uh, well, that was nice and all, but it uh, you know wasn't quite as cool as a Saturn V. <laughs> well, the shuttle's a bus; it's a truck, and 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 uh, we launched enough of them that it's uh, kind of gotten to be old hat with people. I think. Yeah, they had uh, very different jobs, I would say. Yeah, oh, yeah. Yeah, the shuttle's a whole different thing than what we flew back in the day. Now, uh, Apollo 15 was your uh, only mission where you actually uh, flew correct. in space. Mm-hmm. Um, so what exactly was it like to just sort of, uh, you know, for that to be your first experience? Uh, well, <laughs> you know, the first experience or third experience uh, doesn't make a lot of difference. Uh, it, it's it, The training that you go through kind of sets you up for the flight, and uh, once you're in the flight, you sort of feel like you've been there before because you've trained so hard for it. Um, yeah, I heard uh, Harrison Schmidt from Apollo 17. Uh, he was saying that uh, basically you're getting shaken around so much during the launch that uh, you don't even know what, what's going on anyway. Well, yeah, you get, you, you, you get a little shaking uh, when you go through the maximum pressure area in the atmosphere. Uh, but then it smooths out. Uh, I don't recall a lot of shaking, and I was watching the instruments to make sure we were on the right trajectory. Um, and I don't recall ever having a problem doing that because of the shaking. Once you get through the maximum pressure area, then it all smooths out, and it's pretty, pretty, pretty smooth from then on, pretty, pretty easy. So tell me a little bit about how you ended up uh, becoming a NASA astronaut, because, uh, you know, it, it seems like um, that, uh, that job interview would be pretty interesting. Well, yeah. Um, well, of course, the, at the beginning, I grew up pretty much grew up on a farm here in Michigan. Um, and my experience on a farm led me to believe that that wasn't what I wanted to do the rest of my life. Uh, so Lots I, of work. 
Yeah, a lot of work, and uh, you don't make much money here in Michigan, particularly. Um, uh, farms aren't uh, aren't real big profit centers, uh, but they're a life work. Uh, I, I I bounced back and forth between Jackson, Michigan, and East Jordan, which is where my grandparents were. My granddad had a farm up there, and I spent the summers with him. Uh, and then I worked a farm that we had down in Jackson when I was there, and I did that all the way through high school. Um, and I decided that I just had to go to college. I, I mean, I'd do anything I could to get as far away from the farm as I could. And uh, so I got my got an appointment to West Point, and from there I went into the Air Force, and from there um, uh, the Air Force uh, sent me to back to school and then to a test pilot school, and then I ended up instructing at the test pilot school in, at Edwards, uh, working for Chuck Yeager at the time. I worked for Chuck for about a year and a half. Well, that's a cool boss to have. Yeah, he was. Yeah, he's a cool guy. What what year was that? Uh, that was in 1964. Okay, so sort of uh, sort of uh, Mercury era, I, I guess. Uh, yeah, the Mercury flights were kind of getting well. Actually, when I was selected into the program, they were flying the last of the Gemini flights. That was in '66, and uh, then um, uh, later on, '66, '67. 68, 69, we're getting into the Apollo program. And, of course, we had the fire at the Cape in, in uh, 67. Um, and that put everything back a year and a half. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, I, then, you know, once I got into the program, I went through a training cycle, and they got assigned to a support crew on Apollo 9, and then backup crew on Apollo 12, and finally as a command module pilot on Apollo 15. And I was looking forward to more flights because when I first got into the program, there were going to be, uh, uh, they're they're going to have Apollos 18, 19, and 20 flying, and those last three flights got canceled uh, because they were putting the money into the shuttle program back in those days. And probably so, at uh, that point when you were coming in, they probably didn't think that uh, that was going to be the end of uh, the flights to the moon, did they? Apollo no, 20? we didn't. No, we didn't. When I first got into the program, we thought there would be quite a few flights to the moon, and um, uh, they decided that uh, that that need needed to develop the shuttle. And besides, we'd had six flights to the moon. I think people were getting nervous about sending guys all the way out there because uh, we'd been so successful that, you know, if you had a if you had an accident or a problem out there, uh, that would really take the take the edge off the whole thing. So, I think there was a little nervousness about sending more flights. Uh, at the same time, uh, they were de- developing the shuttle, and uh, and it was requiring lots and lots of money. So they, they, they canceled the last three flights. And I used to think that was kind of a bad thing. Uh, we should have gone more. But now we've got three complete Saturn V launch vehicles on display, one in Houston, one in Huntsville, and one down at the Cape. Uh, and they'll be there for a 1,000 years. And I think mm-hmm. it's kind of nice that people can look back and see what great things we did uh, back in the 60s and 70s. Well, my family actually lives in Huntsville, so I've, uh, I've seen the, uh, the, ah, okay. the Saturn V there in Huntsville uh, as uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson calls it, uh, one of the only Saturn Vs in captivity. Yeah, that's uh, that, that's one of them. Uh, uh, of course, the Saturn V Center down at the Cape is probably the best display of a Saturn V rocket, um, and it's pretty magnificent when you look at it. So uh, you were at Edwards. Uh, how did you end up uh, getting, you know, basically the call to become an astronaut? Well, when I got to Edward, I never thought they would have another selection. I thought that they probably had plenty of guys to fly. Uh, but in uh, late 65, NASA uh, had, a, had a call for applicants uh, for the Apollo program. 
And I had all the requirements, so I put my name in. And uh, lo and behold, got selected. It was kind of interesting back in those days because NASA uh, uh, announced publicly uh, a request for applicants. Uh, the Air Force was trying to get the mold program, the manned orbiting lab program, off the ground in those days. So they decided to have a selection program at the same time. So those people who were qualified could apply to either one or both. And I decided that uh, the Air Force probably couldn't get it off the ground, so I applied to NASA only and was lucky enough to get in. And you actually uh, apparently made the right choice because that one didn't get off the ground. Well, that's right. And I had uh, um, a number of friends who were selected for the mole program, and some of them ended up joining us in Houston uh, in 1969, and that was already three years after I'd been there. Uh, well, yeah, so they, I know uh, I had the chance to uh, talk to Robert Crippen, and wasn't he on uh, Bob, that program? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, Bob was one of that group. Uh, he went in the mole program, and then he came down to the Cape in 69. And by that time, those of us who went straight to NASA had about a three-year head start on them. Well, that's not a bad position to be in at all. No, it was good. Uh, and, and I was high enough in my group that uh, I got picked for one of the early flights. We had, we had some people in our, in, our, in our group, the group of 19 that were selected in 66, uh, that actually didn't fly for, well, I guess, probably 20 years. So I was lucky to uh, get one of the early slots and, and, and actually make a flight. What, what sort of resume were they looking for in, in that group? In, uh, well, you know, it's kind of hard to tell. The, the minimum requirement was uh, you had to be less than 35. You had to be in good physical shape. Uh, you had to have a bachelor's degree in science or engineering. Uh, you had to be a pilot with 1,000 hours of flying time. That's the minimum. And uh, when the, when, when, when the the uh, request for applicants came out. I think there were over 800 that were basically qualified uh, that applied, and uh, they picked 19 of us. And I, you know, I think it's just like anything else. The 19 that got picked basically had thousands of hours of flying time. Most of us were test pilots. Uh, I would say the average educational level was a multiple master's degree, mm-hmm. under 35, passed the physical, and all that kind of stuff. Um, so. You know, that's that's kind of the level at which they picked into the program. And those who had just the basic requirements uh, didn't didn't stand much of a chance. So you end up uh, getting selected to be an astronaut. You're flying uh, to the moon. How often does it enter your mind, you know, I, I, you know I'm just a guy from a, a farm in Michigan. How could I possibly be going to the moon? <laughs> I've thought about that a lot. I was a, I was a farm kid from Michigan to go to the moon. Uh, it takes a lot of training. I spent basically 24 years in the military, and 18 of it, I figured one day, uh, one time, uh, about 18 of those years were in training of one way or, in one way or another, either pilot training, going back to school, going to test pilot school, training for the flight, uh, an awful lot of training it takes to get in. And you become a different person than you were when you were small and living on the farm, for sure. So you talked to you. You said you were on the uh, the backup crew for Apollo twelve, and right. uh, so what what were you doing uh, during the Apollo uh, thirteen mission? Uh, I was in Houston. As a matter of fact, I was home when they when the oxygen tank blew up on thirteen, and I got my car drove over to Mission Control, and a bunch of us started working procedures uh, to um, make sure those guys could get back okay. And so several of us, I think Stu Rusa and Ken Manningly were the lead uh, in working in the simulator uh, 
uh, to develop the, all the stuff they needed to have to convert the life support system from the command module to the lunar module so they could survive. There's an awful lot of detailed work that went into that, and uh, it worked. We, you know, everybody came back. I, I thought that was a, almost a high point of the program, uh, Apollo 13, because we had this big, big problem on their way out, and we actually got the crew back safe. And like you said, you know, part of the end of the Apollo program was people worrying about, uh, you know, maybe uh, one day losing a crew up there. So I assume that probably uh, exactly. You know, was and on I think psychologically, minds. that 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 probably had a lot to do with the decision. Now, since you were on the backup crew for Apollo twelve, um, you know, and I know that uh, basically how it worked was you skipped a couple missions and then ended up on, uh, you know, the prime crew, and that's how you were on Apollo fifteen. So what would you have been doing, you know? Had uh, if Apollo thirteen had gone off without a hitch, what would you have been doing? Like, what were you interrupted from doing? When uh, I'd still be doing the same thing because it didn't change our flight status. Uh, back back in those days, uh, it was sort of like a cycle that you go through. You 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 you, you get assigned to a support crew. Then three flights later, uh, if everything is going well, you. Uh, become part of a crew that's a backup on Apollo 12, and then three flights later you make uh, you make your flight on Apollo 15. And most of the flights were that way. The cycle was like three flights. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that meant 15. Um, if they had continued the program, uh, we might have had another shot at Apollo 18, something like that. So um, back to uh, back to Apollo uh, 15. Mm-hmm. Um, so. When you're in orbit around the moon, is it pretty much uh, like being in orbit around the the uh, the Earth, where you're going around every uh, 90 minutes? So, well, uh, the moon is uh, it's a little longer going around the moon because it doesn't have the gravi- gravitational forces that the Earth has. So, a lunar orbit is about two hours, mm-hmm. uh, and so about an hour are... that you're facing the Earth, and you can talk to Houston and everything. Pardon? So, for half that time, you can talk to Houston, and you're facing the Earth, and then the other half, yep. you're behind it. Yeah, right, right. Uh, behind the moon uh, from the Earth and behind the moon from the guys on the surface, too. So there was nobody to talk to. Uh, that was kind of a neat part of flight. What did you, uh, what did you do during that time? Oh, I was busy. Uh, I, 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 I probably put in 20 hours a day doing scientific experiments, mapping the moon, taking high-resolution photos of the moon, uh, working the remote sensors that we had in the scientific instrument module to... Uh, to, to remotely sense the surface of the moon, and that was so that uh, uh, when the rocks were analyzed, they could compare that with the remote sensing and develop a program where we could analyze the chemical composition of the surface of the moon uh, without landing. We could just put we could put robots around the moon, monitoring or remotely sensing the surface, and we could uh, 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 the, figure out draw maps of, of of the chemistry of the moon. And that's what they're doing with a lot of the uh, satellites yeah. now, right? That's that's the whole purpose of landing a landing a crew on the moon, is to collect rocks. And it's called ground truth. And once you analyze those rocks, then you can compare it with what you get remotely, and develop a program. So you only have to do it remotely. Yeah, and that's uh, obviously less risk for uh, for the astronauts themselves and less money. So that's yeah, uh, I would not think. Well, you, well, remotely, you 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 wouldn't you basically you wouldn't need a crew. Mm-hmm. You could send uh, an unmanned satellite up there to uh, uh, remotely sense the surface and send the information back. Um, and that's, that, that was kind of 
you know, that was kind of the goal of what we were trying to do. Now, when you, uh, when you got back, did you sort of envision yourself as being like a John Young type who would just keep on flying forever, or did you uh, have a pretty good idea that this was, uh, was going to be yeah, a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for you? Oh, I, I, I figured I was there forever. Um, I, I wanted to stay. Uh, the, the possibility of making another flight, I wasn't too sure about the shuttle. I'd never really uh, been a big fan of the shuttle. Uh, but uh, it was 10 years away when we got back, and uh, that's 10 years of cooling your heels waiting for another vehicle to come along. And, of course, in the meantime, we had a little problem, and I got fired from the office, so it didn't make any difference what I wanted to do. Well, talk a little bit about that, because I know that, uh, you know, just from my experience, having seen the right stuff, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, Gus Grissom had in his capsule, you know, a little uh, memorabilia, you know, the little uh, little mercury capsule. And when I've heard about your situation, it doesn't seem like it was really all that different. It wasn't. Uh, I think what, what happened was uh, some of the flights before ours uh, had carried things uh, <clears throat> that um, um, weren't exactly mementos. They were, they were carried for specific purposes. Uh, even on Apollo 14, Al Shepard carried a couple of golf balls, if you remember. Yeah, and I think and, they cost about uh, twenty-five grand a piece. Well, at least, yeah, yeah, at least by the time they got on the uh, on the flight, um, and there was always a suspicion that he had a deal with the golf ball company. You know, he denied it, and they and they actually had a Senate investigation of that. Plus, uh, he carried some coins for the Franklin Mint that were going to be melted down and put into a commemorative series by the Franklin Mint. And, uh, you know, all of that was denied. I mean, he denied that he had any deals with anybody. And they kind of glossed over it. But when we, our flight came along on Apollo 15 and we had the postal covers, and uh, the, 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 the existence of those covers became public knowledge, uh, I think NASA and the Senate committee decided that they had to make an example to, you know, the, uh, uh, for everybody else that uh, was going to follow us. So we were kind of the... We were, we were kind of the poster boy for what you shouldn't do. Mm-hmm. Now, you said uh, you weren't uh, much of a fan of the shuttle. How, how closely have you been following uh, what uh, NASA's been going through lately? Because, you know, the original plan was uh, we're, we're going to uh, gradually over the next, uh, you know, 10 years or so go back to the moon. And then mm-hmm. uh, President Obama basically for, for you know, almost it, it seemed like almost on a whim just sort of pulled the plug on that and said, no, we're not. Well, he did pull the plug on the Constellation program. Uh, and uh, the NASA budget, instead of all going into uh, NASA development programs, a lot of that money is now going to private industry. And I think his hope is that uh, private enterprise uh, could take over and, and fly astronauts to the space station. Mm-hmm. problem with that is that there's a, there, there, there's a, <laughs> there's a big gap between wishing you could do something and getting a vehicle man rated so that everybody's concerned you know everybody is comfortable that it's safe uh... and the other thing is that the only thing private industry's ever going to be able to do is just go to earth orbit mm-hmm. uh... they're they're never going to be the the major um, uh, the, the the major partner in going somewhere else like mars uh... Mm-hmm. because there's no profit in that uh, if there is profit, it's so far in the future that uh, I can't see private industry uh, ever getting involved. So, yeah, the program's kind of in a, in a, in a quiescent period now. 
uh, not much going on, um, and it's and it's really sad. Uh, the, the, the NASA budget is such a small part of the federal budget, and that money goes into technology development. It, you know, I keep yeah, I think I uh, I think I actually read that uh, NASA's entire budget is about four tenths of one percent of the budget. That's about right, about yeah. four tenths of one percent of the federal budget. And I keep hearing people say, "Well, you know, why are we spending money in space?" And I keep saying. I don't know of anybody out in space where we're sending money. Uh, we're spending that all down here to develop uh, the technology and the equipment and the systems uh, to go into space. And, and, and that is money that's spent developing things here that eventually find their way into uh, uh, companies that make products that make a profit off it. And I'm, I'm convinced that most everything we have today that, that really makes life easy for us, like cell phones and laptops and computers and televisions and all that kind of stuff. MRIs, CAT scans, I mean, the list goes on and on. They're all an outgrowth of uh, technology that was developed back in the 50s and 60s, oriented towards the space program. Yeah, I mean, uh, at that point, you know, when we started working towards going to the moon, you know, computers were the size of, you know, a, a building. And, you know, one, yeah. of the, one of the major reasons that they ended up uh, becoming smaller and... Uh, you know, to the point well, where, when, where when, people could could sure. uh, buy them is because they had to fit one into a spacecraft. Well, exactly. Uh, the, this, this whole silicon chip business was started uh, to reduce the size of equipment uh, carried on airplanes and spacecraft and all that kind of thing. And that silicon chip has opened up a whole world of consumer products uh, that have placed our industry in this country on top of the world as far as technology is concerned. Uh, that's long-term technology development, and no private company is going to do that. Uh, that's a government function. And uh, when we start uh, cutting down on the space program uh, because we don't want to spend that four-tenths of one percent of the federal budget on, on, on the space program, then I, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm concerned that we're not going to get the technology development uh, in this country that's going to keep us out ahead. We're going to we're we're going to we're going to fall back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially with China and Russia all you know, well, that, sending yeah, wheelbarrows full of money into their space yeah. programs. Well, I I, I got to take Keith. I I'm I'm convinced that uh, there's a psychology about this that if you are willing to be number two, which is obviously what the president wants us to be, though. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're also willing to be number five. Uh, you know, how far, do you, how far do you fall before you suddenly realize that you're way behind? And I think that's the, I think that's the great shame of, of what's going on right now, is that uh, now we have decided that uh, we're not going to be preeminent in space. In fact, we're renting seats on the Soyuz to go to the space station from the Russians. And guess what? As soon as the last shuttle flew, they raised the rates. Yeah, because they were the only game in town. That's exactly right. Now, the day will come probably when we might be buying seats on the Chinese or on the Indian launch vehicles uh, to go to the space station. But right now, it's, it, 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 we have to depend on the Russians. I think that's, I, I just think that's terrible. Well, on that cheerful note, no, I think it's... A, <laughs> it's I, a, I, think, I think we need another election. Well, you know, we do have one of those coming up, and... Uh, you know, like I said, I think to a certain extent, at least to me as an outsider looking at it, it seemed like President Obama's decision was done sort of on a whim just because it wasn't an issue that was uh, of concern to him. 
So I wouldn't be surprised if, uh, you know, the next president doesn't necessarily restart Constellation, but they, you know, come up with a, with a new plan that... Uh, well, is a I think, different. yeah, I, I, we need somebody with a vision and with somebody that recognizes the value of the program, not just to go into space, um, but in my mind, the value of the program uh, long-term falls into two categories. One is technology development, and the other is the motivation that it has provided for generations of kids to go to school and get good grades because they were hopeful of getting into the space program. Yep, that's true. And, uh, you know, you can't, uh, can't totally do that just by watching robots, uh, you know. Well, kind of... you can't, and I don't know of any other programs around that are as exciting and uh, catch the imagination of young people uh, like space program has done. So I, we're going to lose that motivation, I think. Mm-hmm. Well, your uh, your new book is called uh, "Falling Falling to Earth: An Apollo 15 yep. Astronaut's Journey to the Moon." Uh, that came out uh, this week, didn't it? It came out. Uh, we had our first book signing at the Smithsonian two weeks ago, and uh, it is now out. And it's at Barnes and Noble. Uh, you can find it on Amazon.com. And um, I would urge your listeners to go to my website, and they can find out all about it. It's alwarden.com. A-L-W-O-R-D-E-N dot com, and everything's there. It shows you where to get the book, gives you some background on the book, a picture of the cover, uh, a lot about me, and a lot about the space program. So that's kind of a good website to go to. Okay, great, uh, alwarden.com. And uh, it's been uh, really great to uh, get to talk to you. Well, thank you very much, Keith. I've enjoyed talking to you. Cabotron.